Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us today here in the studio, it is Molly Hudson from The Times. Coming up, we will discuss the Scotsman who may well have increased his chances of landing a move to Manchester United. Sorry, Gregor, that isn't you. But first, we are asking, has James Madison done anything wrong? England's uncomfortable weekend saw their defeat to the Czech Republic compounded by Gareth Southgate fielding questions about Madison after he was spotted in a casino following his withdrawal from the England squad due to illness. An image which circulated online on Saturday appeared to show the 22-year-old Leicester playmaker sitting by a gaming table with his hood drawn up around his face. Tom Roddy in the game today writes, Ill Madison warned by manager after casino outing. Once a player has been released, it is up to them how they spend their individual time, said Gareth Southgate. What James has learned is that when you have an involvement with England, there is an increased spotlight on you. So, has James Madison, Gregor, done anything wrong? Not really. Um, it, uh, the thing with the, the stories like this is it it doesn't look great, obviously. Um, but without knowing the, the sort of details behind his, his absence from from the squad, um, obviously he was he was declared ill. That was a decision made by the by the England doctor, um, and it might have been because he could have infected his, the rest of his team ahead of two two games. So um, without knowing the details, it's hard to say anything. The thing is, it just sort of feeds into the whole. Why is Madison not played so far? He's been so good for for Leicester City, so good in the Premier League. And he's yet to be capped for England, despite being called up. Mm. Um, and you know, there's a, just a few lines that came out of Gareth Southgate's sort of press conference about knowing every single detail about every player. You know, it, it, not only just the, the football side of things, but he obviously does his homework about a player's character, and it just feeds into a sort of bit of an uncertainty about about their relationship. I think, and whether that's just a kind of clash of personalities, or whether it's because he is someone who um, is kind of been bold. <laughs> he's bold on the pitch, and he's been bold once or twice off the pitch. That's putting it politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very nicely put. Um, obviously, Molly. Some might say it is disrespectful that you know once you withdraw from the squad, yes, you can do what you like. But should he not be showing some interest in the England game, having been called up by Gareth Southgate? Where do you stand on all of it? I think, as Gregor said, it's just you know. If he maybe had the chance to do it again, he probably wouldn't behave in the same way knowing that he'd been spotted. Absolutely. I think, you know, part of it, as as Gareth says, you learn that you have a spotlight on you with England, but he's a Premier League player. He has that spotlight on him when he plays for Leicester. He's got a huge social media following and he's he's used that in the past and, you know, he's joked along when he's turned up to Leicester games in his flashy backpack and, you know, he knows that he gets that element of being a footballer, you know, we're way beyond the part of you just play football for 90 minutes and that's it. He knows that. Gareth knows that. And it's just, you know, it's come in even worse timing because of the fact that England lost. And, you know, there is that question mark over the the creative ability of England and what James Madison actually could bring to the to the squad on the pitch. Yeah. Um, and as Greg will said, that only fuels a kind of narrative of his relationship with Southgate, really. Mm. Uh, well, as you say, that it sort of does lead to more questions and we're not really getting all the answers at the moment, it feels. But if he's well enough, Gregor, to be in a casino, does it not beg the question that he is then well enough to be with England? It's not always the player's choice, though. That's the thing you've got to be clear about. Um, 
and and a few days have passed, and he's you know he's a twenty two year old lad. He's I know that you know Leicester City were given significant time off over international break, as most Premier League clubs are, uh, teams are. So um, you know what's he going to do? Sit in the house just and kind of lock himself indoors just because he's no longer part of the England squad. And I'm sure you know he wanted to see the game. I'm sure he would have watched the game if he if he had the opportunity. So I don't think he's I don't think he's done anything that really in sort of on its own. Is, is anything to be too critical of but as I say it just sort of helps feed this this uh, this question mark about his England career which hasn't even started Just finally on this one before we move on but would you not if you were James Madison would you not have wanted to watch the game live as it's happening or as you know do a lot of footballers actually not want to watch some, they switch off and Some don't yeah some, I know lots of footballers who don't really like football that sounds stupid and then you know it's, it's the truth though some I know lots of players who don't really watch it. They just but when they turn up to training and when they're on the training ground and they're playing it themselves, it's their absolute world, you know. Mm. So I don't know whether whether that's him or not. Um, and as I say, he could have been. He could have watched it. So it's there's a lot of kind of speculation. Mm. It's understandable because it's an unfortunate, you know, uh, unfortunate incident and the timing of it as well. But uh, I don't think he deserves to be criticised too strongly for it. Well, let's bring in the Times' Paul Joyce for more on England. And before we we move on, Paul, where, where do you stand on this whole debate that we're having on, on James Madison? Is it disrespectful of him to have been pictured in a casino and appearing to not pay attention to the England game that was on that night? I think he's shown a distinct lack of self-awareness that he can go out and think he he won't get spotted on the, on the, at the same time that England are meant to be playing. I think that's a lapse in judgment on his part and... Um, it'll be interesting to see how it moves on from here because clearly Southgate's got one or two reservations about about the player because he's had him in in the squad previously and and not played him and I just don't think James Madison's helped himself in this instance. I think he should be understand he can't lock himself in the house for the next five days when, once he withdraws from the squad. But I think he should have been he's made a mistake in 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 going out that night when he should have been in front of the television watching England for, for me. I mean, his withdrawal came on the Thursday morning and on, and on Wednesday's training. He probably would have known he wasn't going to start that game because Mason Mount had been trialled in the number 10 role. I just think he should be at home and, and watching how England play and thinking, what can I do to to get into this team? Because even if it had been, been well, probably wasn't going to start the, the Czech Republic game because training had suggested that Mason Mount was going to play in the number 10 role. Let's move on then from the James Madison debate. We'll no doubt we'll have it again at some other point. But Paul, in today's game, you've written about Tyrone Mings. Do you think he could be the answer to England's defensive problems? We saw on Friday night against the Czech Republic, it seemed as though England were in, were in disarray. So is Mings the solution for you, Paul? No, not really. I'm quite surprised that Gareth Southgate's gone down that that route, to be honest, and, and it sort of betrays a little bit of muddled thinking from Southgate. I mean, previously, the demand on England's centre-halves was to be very good with the, with the ball at your feet and, and building from the back. Gary Cale was sort of jettisoned for a spell because he wasn't that, and then he was brought back for the World Cup. Chris Smalling was, was famously told he, he wouldn't have an England future because he, he wasn't great with the ball at his feet. Now, Joe Gomez, to be, to me, would be the most natural or would be a better choice to, to, to fill in that 
in that defence with, with England. And I understand Southgate's reservations because he's not been playing for Liverpool regularly, but he did start two games in in a week just before the international break. So I'm surprised that sort of Gomez hasn't been given his chance before Mings, and it, and it sort of sets a question for for Gomez now. If Southgate's saying he won't get in the England team if he's not playing at Liverpool, then that's quite a you know harsh threshold in in one respect for a player who six months ago he was raving about as as being the answer to his. To his defensive plans, he played in the, in the second game of the Nations League against Switzerland when they finished third alongside Harry Maguire, and that looked like it had the the potential to be a long-term partnership. Now, to me, Southgate just seems to be a little too much chopping and changing, and he calls up an, an extraordinary amount of players in his reign. I think it's 75 different players in 37, 38 matches. It just seems a lot to me, and I just think England needs to needs to settle down and find a, a blend. And I'm I'm surprised that he's gone to Mings. Really, it's interesting you mention the number of players that Gareth Southgate has has called up. He's he's called up and then not used more players than any other England manager this century. And you've written about that again in the game. The 16 players called up and not used sort of range from Glenn Johnson to to Aaron Wan Bissaka. You imagine that this could lead to a little bit of frustration uh, on the parts of, of those players that have been called up and then not used. Well, certainly if we go back to Madison, I suspect he'll be, you know, a bit frustrated that he's been been in squads and then overlooked for games. Southgate and the FA have said that there's no, there's you know, that there's not enough Eng- English players, and yet to call up seventy five in thirty odd matches. That's a, to me, that's an extraordinary high number, and I just think he needs to settle England back down a little bit because he's sort of gone off path, you know, since the sort of Nations League onwards. Really, it just seems to be a lack of joined up thinking from England at the moment, both in the selection policy and then on the team sheets, and been a little bit worrying over the last few games the way England have lost lost the way, and you know, getting in the squad is arguably easier than winning a cap now. But I just, I just. Think if he's got all he's got all these different players around him all the time. He's surrounded by having to learn about new players who are coming into the squad. It's moving away from a from a core that he can trust, and I just think it feels to me that he doesn't quite know his best team. I think it's time, Gregor, that we talk about Scotland. A disappointing week at least ended with a comfortable victory over Minnow's San Marino on Sunday night. John McGinn bagged his first career hat-trick in what was a 6-0 win as the pressure on head coach Steve Clark was eased, perhaps following Thursday's 4-0 defeat to Russia, which ended their hopes in this Euro qualifying campaign. They do, of course, have the backdoor route. Let's not forget that. They can still qualify for their first major tournament since 1998 via the Euro 2020 playoffs, which begin in March, having earned the chance to progress by winning their Nations League group last year. But do we give Scotland much hope? And what on earth is going on with the national team? Gregor? Where do we begin with Scotland? Where are they at right now? We begin at the end, I think. We'll just leave. <laughs> um, it's yeah. I, I think it's probably the lowest point I can remember in my lifetime, probably, because even although we've not qualified for a major tournament since nineteen ninety eight, um, at least we were coming close, you know. And in this table, we're behind Kazakhstan and Cyprus, 
which says it all really. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty low. That I mean, although six 0 win is should be something to to cheer. It was against the worst team in the world. Um, and a little nugget from Bill's column in the game today was that San Marino have scored twice as many own goals as proper goals in oh. in uh, the last nine years. Oh. <laughs> so that was the opposition. Anyway, we'll try and take some cheer from it because there were a few positives. Uh, Lauren Shankland, who uh, scored his first first goal for Scotland, um, interesting player. You know, he's he scored a bag full of goals for Air United, um, in last season signed for Dundee United in the summer. He had some some interest from from English clubs, English Championship clubs, but. So he's not even played in a in a top tier yet, and not even playing in the Scottish top tier. They're in they're in the Scottish Championship, but there were some glimpses of promise from him, um, and I, I still stand by the the statement that there is the makings of some of a decent team in midfield with John McGinn, Callum McGregor, um, on, at wide we've got Forrest and Ryan Fraser, who are two really dangerous wingers. It's just. We lack a centre forward and we lack three out of a back four, really, essentially. When you take out Andy Robertson, who is obviously one of the best left backs in the world, and then even we've got Kieran Tierney coming back and he's a left back, which seems like a typically typically Scottish problem to have. <laughs> so he might move move to right back, which has been a real problem area, and he's done that in the past. He did that under Gordon Strachan, but still at centre half. Um, we have Scott McKenna returning, who's probably our best centre half, plays for Aberdeen, had some interest from... English clubs again, um, good good player, but really when he's missing, and even when he isn't the team, isn't the team who, who plays alongside him is is a real a real problem problem spot for Scotland. San Marino aside, under Clark, Scotland have scored three, conceded fourteen, and the Scotland manager has spoken about a fragile confidence within the squad. That Molly is not the mentality you want to be hearing. No, but it's almost understandable when. You listen to Gregor talking about <laughs> the fact they're below Cyprus and Kazakhstan in the table. It doesn't really fill you with confidence, does it? No. And I think particularly, you know, we've looked at teams in the Premier League and when you know what your problem area is, as Scotland do, with their defence, you must know that as a player, you know, regardless of how good what is in front of you is, if you know you can't defend, that's going to be a problem, regardless of who you face. Um, and I think that that is pretty big part of the issue but it's also that cycle of not being very good and then you almost get set in not being very good and that you know that that's not going to help confidence and it's and it's yeah like you say even when you can't really pick too many high points out of beating a team 6-0 that's when you know you're not in a great place results then might not be going their way at the moment but what about performances have they at least been better under Clark than they were under McLeish no, not really. I mean, when we've been absolutely gubbed by Belgium and, and Russia. Um, I still say, again, I stand by the fact that uh, Clark is the best man the best man for the job and the best manager we could possibly hope for. Uh, he, he did remarkably well with, with a, a tiny budget at Kilmarnock, getting him to Euro- European uh, places last season in uh, the Scottish Premiership. Um Good track record before that as well. He worked with some of the biggest clubs in England: Chelsea, Liverpool, Newcastle, uh, and some huge managers. And he was he had a reasonable success at West Brom and and Reading. He was unfortunate to 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 be sacked in both of those jobs, I think. So, 
before anyone wants to start talking about Clark's position, which I know would happen, and even even if we don't qualify through the through the playoffs, which is the sort of the carrot still dangling uh, in March, we've got to stick with him because there's no one else, there's no one better. Um, but performances have been really dire, and there's some things out with, out with his control, like Lee Griffiths is another one, a striker who's had issues with mental health and injury, and he's been. You know he's he's just getting back into playing football now, and he's not been available to him at all for any of his games. Really hoping he'll be available for for March when when the playoffs do come around. Um, and really, there's not much else positive to go on. I think you can probably tell by the tone of my voice. Well, I was, <laughs> I was also going to mention. I think what twenty thousand were at Hamden yeah. to see that six nil drubbing it of was, San Marino. It was pretty wet, you know. It's a rainy day. It's Good not excuse. Like that yeah, but the, <laughs> the fans' apathy is quite clear. Yeah, well, it's understandable. I mean, they're playing the worst team in the world on a night when it's absolutely chucking it down with rain. And we're beneath Kazakhstan and Cyprus in the table, so uh, would you go? Mm. It's, it's, it's just... It's kind of been going on over a period of time, though. It's not... It's been really... Hamden is at its best is, you know, the old saying, the Hamden roar is like nothing else. It's, it's a, it can be a really good place to play football. Um, and the atmosphere can be... Remarkable. I remember going to watch Scotland playing against Holland, and that's one of the best experiences I've ever had watching a game. Um, so it's just a long way from that just now. And part of that is to do with the opposition, and part of that is to do with the way that Scotland are playing. You know, even when Belgium, who are ranked number one in the world, were turning up with with all their kind of glittering talent, uh, there was still a, a very, uh, very small small crowd at Hamden. So. Um, but it's understandable. I think though, when the playoffs come around, and there's a bit of hope in the air, then you'll see a good attendance, and hopefully that can make the difference. Obviously, we have to talk about the old enemy as well, in the sense that England have made World Cup and Nations League semi-finals. As a proud Scotsman, Gregor, does it worry you the gap between the two perhaps is even bigger? Um, no, actually, it doesn't. No, I might. <laughs> enough to worry about exactly yeah 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 thanks for that molly (laughs) no i mean really there's always been a gap uh we came close uh at hamden not so long ago and harry kane kind of stole our our dreams away of a of a victory so um but we've always known there's a gap there's a huge gap in resources huge gap in talent pool um you see england sort of squabbling over who's going to be in the squad or Who's who's your? You've got to choose between the top scorer at, at Spurs or Chelsea, and we've got Ollie McBurney pulling out. Who's we were pleased? We were pleased with playing in the Premier League, mm. and then beyond that, we've got a guy who's playing in the Scottish Championship. Who you know, he's twenty four. He's promising. He might improve, but beyond that, we had Stephen Fletcher for a long time, and who, the Sheffield Wednesday striker. But I saw I saw a comment the other day by. Liam Palmer, the the right back, who's called up, saying that you might consider returning if we qualified. Well, that's that's good to hear. Thanks for that, Stephen. <laughs> so really, we're yeah, the talent pool. That's we. It is what it is. It's one of the worst sort of pools of talent we've had in a long time. Um, but there's not much we can do about it, to be honest. Enough of the doom and gloom, then. Should we talk about something brighter that came out of Let's. that game against San Marino? John McGinn, as I mentioned, became the first Scotland player to net. A first half treble, and that was since Laurie Riley in 1952. The 24-year-old Scotland midfielder was linked with a £50 million move to Old Trafford following his impressive debut season in the Midlands. 
McGinn joined Villa for just £2.75 million from Hibernian last summer, scored in the Championship playoff final as Dean Smith's men won promotion to the Premier League. And he has scored three goals in eight top-flight games this term, while Manchester United, as we well know, have struggled and looked light in midfield. So, Molly, do you see McGinn going far in his career? Yeah, I think he has all the potential to. I I watched um, Aston Villa against Arsenal and obviously he got the opening goal there and was a really, really good element of that Aston Villa team. Obviously, there will be games where he'll struggle because they're a promoted team. They're coming up and they're playing teams that have a lot bigger resources than them. But he's been one of the shining lights in that team that has, you know, stepped up with Villa. Um, he's improved as they've improved. And I think, you know, he's really promising. He's quick. He works hard. Um, the, the, he spoke when he was younger about the fact that he used to be like, described as a rat, like he used to rat around. Um, but that's everything that he's good at. He's he's energetic. He doesn't give you a moment on the ball. And I think that's, you know, they're, they're what his strengths are. And, you know, for now, I think Aston Villa is perfect for him because he's one of the better players in that team. You wouldn't want him to go and be one of the lesser players in a big team and not get that chance to shine, that chance to develop. And then maybe when he's established in the Premier League in a couple of seasons, then that's his time to move on. You see a lot of players that move on almost too quickly um, and then it stunts their development. So for him, I think it's important that he keeps growing and developing at Villa. Mm. As it is, I mentioned he was linked with Manchester United previously. Do you think he would be a good fit for United, Gregor? I think he would waltz into this Manchester United team, but this isn't a Manchester United team, or it shouldn't be anyway. So I think, I think Manchester United. I agree with Molly. I think he's at a, a club that's perfect for him just now. The fans and everyone love him. They are. He is their absolute golden boy. Him and him and Jack Grealish. Manchester United would be a huge step, and he is. He is a kind of bustler. You know, he his energy and enthusiasm are infectious and. As I say, I think he would improve Manchester United's team, but technically he's good, but he's not kind of someone you would immediately put in like an elite bracket that Manchester United, if they're spending £50 million on a player, which was the kind of figures talked about, would expect. Um, but look, I'm very much signed up to the John McGinn Appreciation Society because he is probably, I mean, you said, is there any positives? He is probably the positive because his Scotland career until recently just did not match his, his club career. He's he's an he's a winner. He's won everywhere. He, St Mirren, he won the the league cup as a teenager. At Hibs, he won Hibs first Scottish cup in 114 years, and promotion. He won promotion in his first season at Aston Villa and was Player of the Year. He's a winner, and he sort of that radiates throughout the team as well. But for Scotland, he was really quite average, and people wondered whether that was. The team and the players around them, which there might be some truth in, but in the last, you know, he scored four goals in the last last couple of games. Um, and so, if there's one positive for Scotland, it's it's McGinn looks to be kind of settling into to that midfield. And what about the fact he lined up alongside Scott McTominay for Scotland Indeed, yeah. as well? So, could that be a, a partnership going forward for both club and country, possibly? It could be, but again, I would say that if I was a Manchester United fan, I'm not sure I would look at that partnership and think that was something that was going to get us in the Champions League or winning the Premier League. Um, but that's because S- Manchester United are where they are, are did, at right absolutely, now. Absolutely, yeah. For Scotland, I would I would take it and it probably is the future. And like I say, Callum McGregor, really, really talented uh, left-footed 
midfielder for, for Celtic, if there's three, that's that's a that's the basis of a really good midfield for Scotland. For Manchester United, I'm not so sure. Speaking of Scotland then, Gregor, did you bump into a certain Sir Alex Ferguson at the weekend? <laughs> I wish I had. No. <laughs> it was um Mark Asplund, the the Times photographer, he he sent me a picture afterwards when I was on on my way home. It, was, it wasn't actually the one that made the made the paper. It was Alex sort of peering over a little wall and I was thinking, Oh, he's kind of incognito at the game mm. today. I missed him. Yeah. <laughs> so this was London Road. This was at London Road, Peter Peterborough United, yes. Um Amazing goal record uh, happening there this season. They're the highest scoring club in the country with 28, 28 league goals. Um, and incredibly, the front three has scored 25 of them. Um, only two other players have scored goals in the whole of Peterborough's team in the league. Uh, one of which was, was Louis Reid to, to open the score with eight minutes to go um, against Lincoln on Saturday. So I thought it was going to be a bit of a a jinx on the on the on this front yeah. three, this prolific front three that I was going to write about. And then Ivan Tony, who is the country's leading scorer with ten goals, he popped up with a sublime finish with two minutes to go, a ball over the top, and he lobbed the goalkeeper first time into the into the corner, which I was very pleased about. Um and I spoke to him afterwards. Ivan Tony, someone who I played with at Northampton Town when he was about seventeen at that time. I think he's Northampton's youngest youngest ever player. Um we we were in a relegation battle and Chris Wilder was the manager and I always remember he threw Ivan in an away game against Dagenham Redbridge. It was the second last game of the season and we were still battling for survival and he scored like a bicycle kick from a corner and another goal. I'm thinking, this lad has got something. He turned down a move to Wolves, signed for Newcastle United um, and he only played a couple of Premier League games but a lot of smattering of loans uh, throughout the football league, but Peter B United, are, he signed there in 2018, and they're a club who just they have this a remarkable track record of of players that they sign. Often, they pay a few quid for League One sort of money for these players. Uh, Jack Marriott, Britta Sambalonga, um, Craig McHale Smith, Aaron McLean. There's a huge track record, and they certainly look like they've got another couple there. Mo Isa was signed in the summer from Bristol City as well for 1.3 million which is a lot of money in League One um, he's got nine goals and Marcus Madison who I was doing a bit of research and he's since he arrived five seasons ago has 90 assists for Peterborough 90 wow so <laughs> he is the he's the creator he scored six goals this season created another six and it's the most sort of prolific front three in the country so they are the Salah, Mane, the Firmino <laughs> of League One. Peter are then up to third in the table. They're behind unbeaten Ipswich and second place Wickham. Who's favourites to go up, do you think, then? Is it still too early to say? I mean, Ipswich, they seem to be a bit like Liverpool in that they're top by some distance and haven't quite hit the, the kind of fifth gear yet. Um, I'd be amazed if they don't win the league. They've got the resources. Got a good manager in Paul Lambert. Wickham... Gareth Ainsworth has been spoken about as a potential uh, manager of Sunderland now. That would be a huge blow for them. He's be, he's the second longest serving manager in the Football League. Been there seven years. If they lost him, I would see that would be the end of their promotion bid. It could be that serious, you know. Really? Um, and Peterborough, if they can keep clean sheets, if they keep a few more clean sheets, then absolutely they'll, they'll be in looking at the top two. I mean, the last time they, they were promoted in 2010-11, they conceded 75 goals and scored 106. 
and they're on track to score the same figure this season but they're also a bit leaky at the back so if they can you know they've got goals that's why I went there to watch them if they can keep it keep it tight at the back then I'm sure they'll be in the top, in the in amongst the running for the top 2 I'm Molly while you're here let's should we look over the WSL this weekend uh, Chelsea women were 2-1 victors over Arsenal women it was a comeback victory as well there were what 4,149 at this game how encouraging a number is that at Kings Meadow um it's it's really important because we you know we talk about the the big games at Stamford Bridge and the Etihad and I've spoken about those on this podcast before and how important it is to get them coming back and actually you know, they're almost anomalies when you look at the attendances. This is a very big... It was um, the record WSL attendance at Kings Meadow. Obviously, that's helped by the fact that it's a derby game mm-hmm. and the FA have done really well with their scheduling this season. There we go. I praise the FA for scheduling um, because they've put the big games on the men's international windows. So when when people don't have anywhere else to go on a Sunday and they want to watch a bit of football, these games are marketed well enough now to be able to get people down there, and it and it made a difference that you could tell the usual audience that Kings Meadow it was it was a lot more male yesterday. There was a lot of men's football fans there. The atmosphere was brilliant. Um, Emma Hayes, the Chelsea manager, spoke to her players at half time and actually said, "If you can score." imagine how loud this place is going to be and that's exactly what happened they got the equaliser and then they went on and got the winner and the roof came off um and that's exactly what these players deserve and it's it's now getting that week in week out and Chelsea have shown that they can do that despite the fact that Kings Meadow isn't near Stamford Bridge obviously Wimbledon have left there now so it is Chelsea's own ground um they're developing it and doing starting to put their own stamp on it and that that's a really big thing for them now because when you think of Chelsea now, you think of Kings Meadow. It's starting to become their home. Mm. And I was speaking to some of the players today and they were saying that, you know, it feels homely now. It feels like when they walk into that ground, that's their home ground. And that hasn't always been the case because, you know, they've been sharing or moving about and whatnot. So I think that's a really important step for the women's game now to get this regularly. It is early days, of course, but have Chelsea then shown that they are title contenders? I think what they showed at the weekend was their squad depth. And yes, there aren't as many games in the Women's Super League as there are in the Premier League. But when you add in the dominance of the big teams in women's football, your Arsenal, your Manchester Cities and your Chelsea, they're almost always fighting to the end of all of the the um, campaigns. So you look at the FA Cup, the Continental Cup, Arsenal, Manchester City this season are in the Champions League. So that makes them even more stretched, particularly Arsenal, who have a small squad. And that was really shown at the weekend that basically the manager, Joe Montemuro, could only bring on Jordan Nobbs off the bench, who herself is coming back from an ACL injury and isn't fully fit. So, you know, when you look at the substitutions Emma Hayes made, Ramona Backman, who is a Swiss international, and Maria Thorostatir, who got the goal, I mean... They're world class players that would walk into most WSL teams. So that squad depth there is gonna is gonna be really important. Mm. And actually already we're so early in the season, but imagine that, you know, five five months down the line when everybody's played in so many competitions, it's gonna be even more important. And you mentioned Manchester City, they were three 0 winners over Birmingham on Saturday. They are top of the table with a one hundred percent winning start. Uh, injuries and player departures haven't really hampered them. No, we you know, you look at it on paper and you think 
Nikita Paris has left, who had such a good season for Manchester City last term. Obviously, they've brought in Ellen White, who was a brilliant signing, but she's been injured. She's got a knee injury, and I think she's just about ready to come back for that, maybe for the Arsenal game, um, which is their next league game. But they've found they've found goals. They've found other players have really stepped up, and yeah, maybe they haven't had the hardest fixtures in the world. Um, but they're now going to a really crucial period this week. It's the Champions League. They play Atletico Madrid, who they lost to in last season of the Champions League. So that's a really important game for them. And then they play Arsenal. And what both managers you felt after that game yesterday is because there are so many games that these teams are expected to win. When they come up against an Arsenal, a Manchester City and a Chelsea, when they play each other, there's so much importance based on that game. If you win that game, you suddenly have the impetus to go on and win the league. That's literally how important those games matchups are um so already Arsenal are, are behind Chelsea in that respect um and Manchester City will you know if they can keep that unbeaten run going they'll be delighted well that is it for now many thanks to our guests today Molly Hudson and Paul Joyce remember you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet it is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial search the Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Thursday as we look forward to the Premier League returning including the crunch game at Old Trafford as Manchester United welcome old foes Liverpool game is brought to you by the times for more information and more podcasts from the times head to thetimes.co.uk